Well, it's good to see you guys and welcome to uh, the third of our little three, uh, three lesson installment on Advent topics in December. So just a little housekeeping. So this is just the way everything works at the church here is uh, this will be the last Wednesday that we have programming until January 12th. That's kids, adults, etc. So the next two weeks will be uh, Christmas and New Year's, and then on January the 12th, we'll start. Okay, I know we haven't finished this series yet, but the next one is gonna just be killer. I cannot wait. Because, I mean, I'm really excited about it. I wanna talk about some of the great biblical theology of the Bible, kind of the how to fit all the Bible together. And I wanna start by doing stories out of the book of Genesis. So I wanna talk about young earth and old earth and bring all the hardest questions you got. I mean, because we'll just dive into them together. I want to talk about the history. I want to talk about the psychology uh, of those stories. I want to talk about the theology of those stories and then the application. What does that really mean for us? I think you'll find this to be really an interesting approach to the Bible. So let me say a prayer, though, and we're going to jump into this lesson, which I really want to talk about the idea of peace. It's what everybody wants in America and nobody's really found it, as best I can tell, or at least that's what the news looks like at night. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your presence. We're grateful for your blessings. And Father, we lift up our concerns and cares, whether it's grief or illness, or relational tension and difficulties, whether it's stress or anxiety at this time of year. And yet, Lord, we thank you for all the things that you have done. We live in a country where we have unmatched material uh, blessings. Father, we have so many uh, good things that we have access to, and these are gifts from your hand. And so we do give up to you, Father, our cares and concerns, and I pray for your presence. We want you more than we want the outcomes, and so we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have questions, feel free to text them to that number during class. That's the same number as always. I put it up there every time. It's also on your handouts. We're talking about uh, the three gifts of Advent. Advent is a church tradition. It's a good tradition, but it's a church tradition. It goes back pretty far in history, and it's the four Sundays before Christmas, and it's hope in various orders. If anybody tells you this is the way Advent's done, that's the way they do Advent. I mean, Advent's done very differently throughout history and in different places, but basically hope, love, joy, and peace are the four focuses because of ex the expectation of the arrival of Christ. I appreciate Bill talking about uh, joy last time while we were out of town, and he did a great job with that, that topic. But what I'd like to focus on is the idea of peace. And the idea of peace is either outer peace or inner peace, and so I just wanted to set the stage and set this right, is we're gonna talk a little bit about inner peace but we're also gonna talk about peace in the external. And the question then is, what does peace mean to us? So it's worth defining our terms a little. Peace means different things. So first, on the most basic level, peace is the absence of conflict. Whether that's peace in the world, meaning no, we're not fighting a war, or whether that's peace at your job where you're coworker is not mad at you and you're arguing, peace can be the absence of conflict. Peace can also be the presence of harmony. And you know as well as I do, those are not the same thing, are they? 
We all want harmony, but a lot of times we'll settle for a lack of conflict, particularly at Christmas. And you know what I'm talking about. It's crazy Uncle Joe. We just need to not have any conflict, right, through Christmas. So you get the idea of an absence of conflict or a presence of harmony. And that brings into play a lot of circumstantial, emotional, relational aspects. And in America, whether you're a Christian in America or you have a more secular mindset in America, we are obsessed with the idea of finding peace. So let me frame this first by starting with uh, Jesus. This is an interesting question. And that is, what did Jesus really come to give us peace? This is not a trivial question. First, in the Christmas story, you see this. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel. This is when the uh, angels appeared to the shepherds to tell them that a great thing has happened in Bethlehem. And there's a great host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Peace to people upon whom his favor rests. Well, that's hardly an unqualified blessing, if you will. That's not like, hey, I came and there'll be no more wars, there'll be no more uh, conflict, in fact, there'll be harmony and peace. There are messianic prophecies about the, if you remember Isaiah, the lion will lay down with the lamb and they, we will form tools of war no more. Those messianic prophecies are, were not fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, those messianic prophecies are yet to be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus here for in the first coming? To bring peace to those on whom the favor of God rests. So I wanna look at peace on earth, and then I wanna look at peace within. So let's start with peace on earth. And if you watch the news much, or if you just are in tune with our society, for the past 2,000 years, there has never been peace on earth. There's never been an absence of conflict. Heaven knows there's never been universal harmony. And yet, there have been more schemes, and it's still something that people aspire to. I mean, just in the 20th and 21st century, you have, after World War I, the League of Nations, and then its successor, the United Nations, and all the high hopes that that would stop conflict between nations, and needless to say, that has, has not been entirely successful, has it? But if you look at 2,000 years of history, and of course beyond that as well, Jesus didn't actually commit to, nor did he bring a lack of conflict on the earth. In fact, this is what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And so Jesus was up front. He basically said, I haven't actually come here to resolve all of your interpersonal problems, all of your international diplomacy problems. In fact, I came to make it worse. And in what sense is he talking about that? And what he's talking about is the idea that this story this historical event of the cross of Christ bearing the sins of humanity to all who will repent and place their trust in Christ can be reconciled to God. On the surface, that sounds like that should be a very universally appealing message. 
and should lead to peace of mind as well as peace and harmony amongst people. And yet, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, he didn't mean I came to bring a sword in the sense that my followers are going to be violent. Have Christians been violent in history? At times, is that consistent with the New Testament? Not at all, not even slightly. You would have to say that's certainly a case of people being very much off course of what their core beliefs are. Jesus didn't say my followers are gonna fight. You won't find that in the early church. You won't find it in Jesus' teaching. What he said was the sword is a symbol of dividing things. The sword is a symbol of divvying up parties. The gospel is inherently divisive. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, what I came here to do and the story that you will then go tell, remember gospel just means good news. I'm gonna tell you the good news of something that happened and that is the death and resurrection of Christ and the reconciliation of all those who place their trust in him with God. That's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the good news, that's the good story. He said, believe it or not, that story is gonna be very divisive and it has been. It was then, I mean, they did crucify Jesus, right? And you would say, well, if niceness is your category, he was probably one of the nicest people you've ever met. And yet he was crucified. Why? This message is inherently divisive. It's divisive in our world today. In fact, today, it's really similar to the first century. In the first century, when the disciples went out to preach this basic good news message, they were persecuted. If you remember the apostle Paul, he said, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned and left for dead, I've been imprisoned, etc." That's what happened to all of the disciples. You think, wow, that seems like a bit of an overreaction to this good story, right? Uh, this invitation to place your trust in Christ. Christ knew that that story would inherently be divisive. It would set father against son. It would set brother against brother. The gospel is divisive. So what am I saying there is that the intention of the gospel is, it's, it is not that the gospel is intended to be divisive. It is predictive that the gospel will be divisive. And that has been true. Jesus said this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we're just kind of investigating what does Jesus mean by peace? Well, first of all, he said there won't be peace between the nations. He said, in fact, I didn't really come to necessarily bring peace in your family or bring peace in your culture because the gospel is gonna divide. But in some sense, he says, every one of you that place your trust in me, even though you have trouble in this world, you will have peace. And what does he mean by that? What kind of peace? Well, traditionally people have thought that what he's talking about is, I may not have circumstantial peace. What do I mean by that? The absence of conflict in my circumstances or harmony in all of my relationships. I mean, if you've been on Twitter lately, and if you haven't, you're not missing anything edifying at all. Uh, but basically, you will be shocked at how you can say the most innocent things and get the most hate. I mean, if you believed what people wrote about you on Twitter, you'd, I mean, you'd probably kill yourself. I mean, seriously, 
it's, it's amazing the amount of hatred that comes there. So what, what people have understood Jesus to be talking about is not circumstantial peace, the absence of conflict or harmony with people who are hostile towards the gospel, but that there's some sense that in us there is peace. Well, actually the secular world pursues this as well. In fact, in America, I wanna talk about the way, unfortunately, some Christians pursue peace, but our secular society is very invested in pursuing this idea of inner peace. He says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, so do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And so this idea of inner peace, and this is something that uh, the more secular philosophers have talked a lot about. Christopher Lash wrote this, and uh, it's, a, it's a cultural criticism of America, but it's an interesting comment he makes. People today hunger not for personal salvation, let alone for restoration of an earlier golden age. And that's really true. Let me pause for a second. There have been times in history when people have said, we need to go back to some time in history. That's not really what you see happening today. In fact, what you see happening today is a criticism of everything historical. They were all racist, sexist, oppressors, whatever. And my only point in saying that is we are very critical of every stage of our history for one reason or another, whatever it may be. So we're not looking to go back to a golden age. We're not looking for personal salvation in the sense that even though the gospel is growing, not in America. It's growing in the world but not so much in America. What people, well, his observation is this, but people are looking for the feeling, the momentary illusion of personal well-being, health, and psychic security. If you think about it, and if you stay in touch any with the self-help kind of world out there in America, we are self-help fanatics. We probably sell more self-help books in America than maybe the rest of the world combined. Don't quote me on that, I haven't looked that stat up, but I feel like it's probably true. In other words, we're really into self-help. What are we actually doing? Well, Lash says that what we're really doing is looking for the feeling of personal well-being and psychic security because our circumstances are so turbulent for a variety of reasons. The pace of change, technology makes people feel alienated. COVID, for heaven's sakes, has threatened everybody's uh, fear of livelihood and really invoked everybody's fear of death, right? I mean, COVID has heightened that fear in, in everybody. And so all those things have made us feel like we need to retreat into some safe place inside us, some kind of psychic security or well-being. That emotional insulation, if you will, or that security that's what most of the people that you know are really looking for. They may or may not be able to articulate that very well, but if you watch their behavior, that is their fundamental motivation, is I need to find a way to be emotionally insulated from all of the threats in my environment, whether it's anxiety causing or distress or disease or uh, you know, any of the problems in my life, I need to be insulated and I need to find security. And if I can't have security in external terms, meaning COVID's there, I, I don't have security. In fact, we walked around in COVID thinking everybody you met was a potential threat, right? They could kill you. 
by simply giving you a disease. So what did we do? We kind of overreact a little bit on the whole mask thing and the whole shutdown thing. I think by now everybody looked back and go, oh, okay, yeah, sorry about that. Maybe a little overreaction there. Why? Why is that happening? I'm not so much interested in critiquing it. I just want you to realize, why is that happening? We're looking for some kind of psychic security. We're looking for some refuge from a perceived threat that we cannot fix. That's what Lash is tapping into. He says, that is the fundamental goal of most of the people that you know. Bruce Thornton is another uh, classicist and uh, philosopher, and he says this, as well as believing that psychological techniques will overcome the tragic conditions of human life, the therapeutic vision, and I'll tell you what that is in a second, endorses an obsessive concern with the emotional states that conditions arouse in people and the happiness obtainable once those conditions disappear. So follow me on this, just this flow of the average person that you know, and that is there are things in my environment that I cannot fix. Those things make me feel bad, they raise my anxiety, they cause me to be unhappy, they cause negative emotions in me. And so there are two schools of thought, either I need to fix what's out there, and there is one school of thought that pursues that, but the therapeutic vision or the psychotherapeutic vision is it's just in the water and in the air in America. You, you will hardly find anyone that is not affected. In fact, some of the things I'm gonna say, you're gonna go, wow, well, why are you saying that? That's just so normal. I know, the psychotherapeutic vision is very normal. What is the psychotherapeutic vision? It fundamentally says this. You can't necessarily control the events in your life, but you can control how you react to the events in your life. And I know you're thinking, Terry, isn't that true? To some extent, but here's the problem. The psychotherapeutic vision says that if you get enough psychological therapeutic help, you can emotionally be able to react well to the external circumstances and provide for yourself from inside yourself the emotional insulation that you want. Psychological techniques will heal the hurts that you have by making you able psychologically to deal with the threats or the stress or the insecurities or the panic attacks or whatever that happens. In other words, the fundamental tenet, and I'm not saying the techniques aren't at time useful, I'm not saying the counseling isn't useful. What I'm saying is, is this idea that inside you is the answer to peace in this world. You can't control the events, but you can control everything else. That's been tried for 2,600 years. And that philosophy started primarily with a guy named Gautama Buddha. That is the essence of Buddhism. And that is if you can detach yourself from external events, and in Buddhism, internally realize that none of this is real. Well, that's not what the psychotherapeutic vision says, but they have some similarities in that. You can't control that but you can control what's inside you, and the answer is inside you. Well, the psychotherapeutic vision says, no, it's real. You just have to learn how to control your emotional state, and that's what Thornton is saying. He says, basically, it's not so much overcoming the tragic conditions of human life, meaning 
Everybody's gonna suffer, Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. That's just experientially true for everyone. He says, but the therapeutic vision is obsessively concerned with the emotional states that those conditions arouse. What does that lead to? What it leads to is the idea that I can't control that, I need to control my emotional response to these circumstances and I am in control of me. It does two things. One of them is it keeps you from trying to fix things in the world, and I'll talk about that in just a second. The other is that it basically disconnects who you are in your inner world from what's going on in the external world. It makes for a fragmented consciousness. And I know this is kind of philosophical, but let me bring it back to that's the explanation for what a lot of what you see happening in our culture and the people that you know. <clears throat> we now have a very dualistic view. There are events happening out there, bad relationship, bad marriage, you make me unhappy, you don't fulfill me anymore, etc. And I somehow have to find within myself the solution. And a lot of the times, you know what that solution is? I'm gonna have to cut you loose because I need to protect myself. I need to draw my boundaries. I need to, and I'm not criticizing everything that this is talking about. I'm just saying that think about what you see. We live in a throwaway society. We throw people away. Why do we throw people away? Because we believe in the good and the value of people. We throw people away because you've threatened my inner peace. And my emotional responses can't deal with you, and so I'm gonna cut you loose. And you see the weirdest stuff. You see, Americans get so emotionally wrapped up in certain little things and so emotionally oblivious to big things. Have you noticed that? That you can get people, if you see a picture of a puppy suffering on the TV screen, you get millions of dollars in donations. And maybe rightfully so. Please don't say I'm dissing the puppies of the world here. But my point is, you have huge human suffering going on, and it's almost like it isn't even happening. My point, again, is not to critique that so much as to explain it and say that really, all I really have to do is insulate myself from my little piece of the world. And one of the things that keeps from happening is this. Another philosopher. This is very, this is very much this, uh, a great prescription and a diagnosis of the secular world. The suffering society creates, in other words, our society does create some suffering. There is injustice. There is some racism uh, to some extent. People disagree how much, but that happens. There is oppression. There's economic oppression. There is unequal access to healthcare. I mean, our society, again, I'm not trying to make a political statement, I'm just making the obvious. Our society creates a certain amount of suffering on top of what's already there, right? Uh, no offense, the Department of Motor Vehicles, been in line there lately, that is suffering, all right? It's very much suffering. But our society creates certain suffering and we privatize it and psychologize it. And the therapeutic vision. It's not what's happening that's fundamentally the problem, it's how I'm emotionally dealing with it. That's the problem. What must be fixed, some would have us believe, are not the social, but the psychological conditions. In fact, the call for psychological optimization 
is a way of adapting us to the existing form of domination and veiling social ills. Thus, positive psychology marks the end of revolution. Instead of revolutionaries, we have motivational speakers. So what I'm saying is, is that psychotherapeutic way of looking at the world, there's some truth in it, but the answers to all your problems are not inside you. The answers to all of the circumstances in your life is not to avoid suffering by managing your emotions in some way. That's not really the answer. In fact, one of the things that you get from that is the failure to say, you know what, we actually need to end hunger. We actually need to cure cancer. We actually need to get uh, vaccines into the third world. In other words, those things, we are less motivated by that because we have privatized and psychologized this search for peace. The interesting thing about that is, you know how Jesus turns everything upside down, the first will be last and the last will be first. Whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. Whoever uh, pursues this life will lose it. I mean, he kind of turns everything upside down. You would think that you control the ability to be at peace. That's the psychotherapeutic vision. If only you know enough and only you learn how to deal with your emotions well enough, you control whether or not you can be peaceful in all of these circumstances. And that turns out not to be true. I mean, and exhibit A, look at the world today. We've been in depth of this for a long time and we, we have increased mental illness, we have increased anxiety. In other words, the more we try to find those answers inside us and insulate ourselves emotionally, it turns out as a society, the more problems that we have. And if you've been watching our society, here's the interesting observation I would make. Our problems are cascading. Now you may be on one side of the divide or the other of any given issue, whatever it may be whether it's a political issue, it's states' rights, federal rights, it's mandatory vaccines, no, lose your job if you don't get vaccinated, or you do, or whatever the issue is. You may be on one side or the other. I'm simply making this observation. We're not solving any of them. Would you agree with that? Our problems are actually cascading far faster than we're solving them. Actually, I would argue we're not solving our problems. That's one of the issues here, is that I'm fundamentally convinced that happiness is in here and things outside are beyond my power to change. And that's what he says, this is the end of revolution. And what he means by that is not violently overthrowing the government, it just means a bunch of people getting together and said, you know what, we're really not okay, that there's not clean drinking water in the world, and you know what, we're unhappy about it, and I think we'll do what we can about it. And we may not fix it, but we're going to revolt and say, that's not acceptable to us anymore. We're going to go deal with it. You really don't see that happening much. Where you do see it happening, I'm gonna argue, is in communities of faith. But in general, when's the last time you saw that kind of an initiative? That's because of this way of approaching peace. We're not willing to affect the society in which we live so much for peace. But the fact is, some things actually just need to be changed. There are things wrong in the world that we should at least endeavor to change. Well, circumstances is yet another way. And that is, you know what? 
we will try to control circumstances. And so you have two kinds of people in our society right now, and this is gonna make a lot of political sense in a minute. And again, I'm not talking politics, I'm just gonna tell you why this is happening. And it really does boil down to the individual person's need to figure out how am I going to deal with my life? How am I gonna deal with the problems in my life? How can I find some peace and quiet? Well, one way is to work on me inside. The other is to control my environment. Thornton says this, by maintaining the spurious hope, needless to say, he doesn't think this is possible, that the tragic limitations of human life, meaning death, disease, unfairness, oppression, bad people doing bad stuff, the tragic limitations of human life and that human unhappiness can be eliminated. The therapeutic vision has been responsible for the wildly unrealistic expectations expectations to which we in the industrial West cling. The average American today, and this is the fundamental dilemma, the average American today enjoys a level of material comfort earlier peoples would have imagined only for the gods. By every criterion, we are the most fortunate human beings ever to walk the face of the earth, yet despite this godlike comfort, we are unhappy. He makes a very good point. We control our environment better than anybody that's ever lived. In other words, you can go get a pill and you know, you're, you're cured. You can have a surgery and get well. Uh, you have financial security that not many of us really wonder where's my next meal coming from. And that's actually not necessary for anybody in this country. It happens in this country, but it's not necessary in this country. That is a solvable problem. But what he's basically saying is, is that the more you, as, as the therapeutic vision, what I told you was the more you try to just control your happiness and your peace by controlling your emotions, and the way you react to things, how that paradoxically makes you less and less happy, more and more anxious. What Thornton is saying, the more you double down and try to control your environment, the less that works. Let me give you a great example of that. And I'm gonna to talk to you about politics for a minute and I'm not critiquing it, I'm explaining it. Most authoritarian governments start with a vision of human flourishing. Two examples, 20th century, communism. Communism, I know uh, some of you say, don't know anything about it. I was born after that whole thing was done. Others of you would say, I do know something about it and I know it's really bad. What you may not know is, why was communism successful? It was broadly supported by the people. Why was Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich successful? He was elected democratically. Those are very authoritarian government systems. You go, nobody would vote for this. Nobody would support it. Not the way it turned out, but you know how it started? It started with communism by saying, you workers, you guys are getting a raw deal. You know what we need to do? We need to be socialists. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Socialism, we're gonna take away the land and gonna take away the factories from those rich fat cats and what we're gonna do is we're gonna spread it out so everybody kinda of gets the same. And human, and this is actually what Marx believed. He said, everybody's gonna be happier. Everybody's gonna have more peace. 
and everybody's life is gonna be better, except a handful of fat cats, and they're just gonna live the way the rest of us live. That was the utopian vision of communism. The utopian vision in the Third Reich was this. After World War I, we were punished by the Treaty of Versailles, we Germans. And so, we have been suffering, paying huge reparations and debts. This is unfair. All I want to do is I want to make Germany great again, and I really want to stop sending our money overseas and make your lives better. And everybody voted for that. Authoritarian uh, governments, authoritarian people, generally start out with the motive of, I'm gonna bring you more peace and prosperity. That's the way it starts. But to do that, what do you have to do? I have to control the environment, don't I? And so what did they do? They controlled the environment. They overthrew the government and they made war on anybody that they felt like was standing in the way of their happiness and their internal peace. Now let's come to the 21st century. What's happening in America today? By all accounts, I don't think there's anybody that would doubt the fact that there is more control over your lives today than there was 50 years ago, 100 years ago. I'm not making a political statement because this spans parties. All I'm saying is, is that people are starting to feel like there is a group of elites who are willing to use the coercive power of government to control your lives. There's truth in that. Again, I'm not picking a side, I'm just saying that is true. We see more coercion of your behavior than we did 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Why? Are these just bad people and they wanna be mean to you? No, here's what I think that they actually believe, and that is we actually want you to be safer, healthier, happier, more peaceful, but you don't know how to do it and you won't make good choices. So we will take power and make those choices for you. That's every authoritarian government of every era of history. And it starts with the same, quote, good intentions. And it ends the same way every authoritarian government in every era of history has ended, and that is in oppression and suffering. So what's my point? My point is simply this. Whether you try to achieve peace internally by being in control of your own emotions, or you try to achieve peace by controlling external events and the people around you, neither one of those ways has historically or is proving successful. Let me bring it down to home. Let's talk about your marriage for a minute, or let's talk about your relationship with your mother-in-law. I mean, pick, pick, I'm sure there's somebody you have conflict with, so let's pick it, right? You have two basic approaches. And one is, I need to learn how to deal with this person better. I need to learn psychological techniques. I need to not let them push my button, etc. A noble enterprise. Has that worked really well for you? I know. It's helpful, but it doesn't solve the problem, does it? You're not entirely in control of, of what's going on. The other option is, I'm going to control my spouse, or I'm going to control my family. I'm going to basically get them to behave in a way that leads to peace. And you know, we try both, just like governments, just like humanity as a whole, we as individuals sometimes wanna find the answer inside, we wanna find the answer by controlling our external environment. 
So where do we go from here? Because those approaches to peace don't work very well. So let's circle back and let's talk about what is Jesus talking about when he talks about peace? He's not talking about controlling your environment. I mean, he never says that, hey, you Christians gather together and become a big political party and tell everybody what to do. Or you guys get weapons and overthrow the government and then kind of run the world the way you want. That's not what he says is, he basically says, you're gonna have trouble. You can't control all the circumstances. Nor does he say, you know what? If you guys would just be psychologically well-adjusted, I think you'll be able to weather the storms of this life. Nothing wrong with being psychologically well-adjusted, but it isn't clearly sufficient. It doesn't really bring the peace that it promises. So what's Jesus talking about? Well, Del Blanco uh, makes this really interesting observation from a secular point of view, but it's very much touches on a biblical truth. He says, we arrive at the root of our postmodern melancholy. And that's a great way to think about our society. We're melancholic to the point of being depressed as a nation. We live in an age of unprecedented wealth, but in the realm of narrative and symbol, we are deprived. What does he mean? So the ache for meaning goes unrelieved. Here's what he's tapping into. He says, we as a culture have so much material wealth and prosperity but we have a poverty of meaning. We look inside to find the meaning of our existence and we realize, I got nothing in here. All I got's me. And we look outside to find the meaning of our existence. We build big buildings. We slap our names on things. We, we try to live our lives through our children. We, we do look outside. What he's saying is, is we can't find meaning. What makes this worthwhile? That's a really different way to look at circumstances, isn't it? One is control them and get rid of them. Control my world, control my circumstances. The other is ignore them, just don't let them affect me. The third way in this, the biblical way, and what Del Blanco puts his finger on is this. Actually, given that circumstances are inevitable, some of them will be unfavorable, and given that you can't control your feelings your way out of it, maybe, just maybe, you can find meaning in what happens to you. The most secular-minded philosopher that you know is a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. And even Friedrich Nietzsche, the guy who said God is dead. By the way, Nietzsche's dead. Now, did I mention that to you? It's funny how that turned out. But the point is, he said this, human beings can endure any how as long as they have a why. Everybody understands this, that meaning is the way to deal with suffering, difficulties, fear of death, etc. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus said, I didn't come here to control your circumstances. That's true. I didn't come here to make you so psychologically withdrawn and well-adjusted that nothing that happened out there could hurt you. He didn't say that either. He just said, you're gonna live and this is gonna be a mess and I'm gonna provide meaning to this whole experience. That's the key to peace, is understanding there is meaning in what happens to us. No matter where you are in your life, no matter what kind of difficulties you are in, if difficulties are something to be avoided, then your life just stinks. If difficulties are something you should be able to control emotionally, then you're just a deficient human being. 
That's pretty much your two choices. Or those things happen for a reason, not necessarily because God wants them to happen. God didn't want you to get cancer. God doesn't want you to have emotional difficulties, but God is big enough to make those things meaningful. That's what the scripture says. Let's look at this. This is what I really want you to think about. The so what? Listen to Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. This is very profound. What he's saying is that you no longer need to think you're a deficient human being. You are reconciled to God. God is okay with you because you surrendered and he took all of your deficiencies. We call these sins. I just wanna use a more psychological word. He took all your deficiencies to the cross and you should breathe easier and say, there is now no condemnation. Most of you don't really feel condemnation from God. You know where it mostly comes from? All your secular neighbors themselves. Man, why can I not get my act together? Why can I not control my emotions better? Why can I not stop from reacting? It's all self-directed. And Paul says, there's now no condemnation for us. And then listen to how it goes on in the beautiful passage. What then shall we say? If God is for us, who could be against us? Meaning, who could really overcome us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not graciously give us all things. What's he saying? He's saying if you just stop and you think about as a Christ follower, what has happened in your life, nothing in this world can compare with the security that you have. Jesus says, are you secure physically? You'll never get COVID, you'll never get cancer, you'll never die. No, in fact, he says, oh, you will. In fact. I don't know that anybody's getting out of this alive. So my point is, is like he's saying, yes, you're gonna die. He said, don't worry about that. There's more to this life than that. And you go, wow, you're right. That won't be pleasant, but it's no longer the ultimate thing to be feared, is it? And the idea is that eternal life in Christ simply means that I'm in God's hands. Not just when I get to heaven, I'm in God's hands now. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying there is now no condemnation, not, hey, do your best in this life, but hey, when you die, at least you get to go to heaven, but what good luck. That's not what he's saying. You can have that peace now. Second, this is probably, uh, you know, we use this verse a lot, and we use this verse a lot for a reason. Here's the interesting thing. This is the essence of meaning. It basically says this, and the, by the way, if you wanna read the Bible as the story of how bad things happen to God's people and it works out for good, that's a great way to read the Bible. Not the only thing the Bible's about, but that's a lot of the reason the stories in the Bibles are there. Are there. When you read the Old Testament, you say, man, I don't understand all that history. I don't understand all the laws and I just don't understand the Old Testament. Okay, read it this way. Just read it as a story of bad things happening to people and see how it turns out. And basically is the story of God saying, no matter what happens to you, I can actually turn it for ultimate good. We know that in every circumstance, 
anything that happens in your life, God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. Let me shorthand this. This is Christ followers that he's talking about. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, you're now a child of God. You love him, you've been called according to his purpose. Everything that happens in your life will be worked for good. Now hear me, he doesn't say it will be worked for your comfort, it will be worked for your convenience, you will never be sad. He simply says this will all work for the ultimate good and the ultimate peace. And you know what, you can rest assured in that now. So you can't control the way you react to everything, although not overreacting is a good thing. You can't control your circumstances, although stop doing stupid stuff is a good life strategy, right? I mean, let's face it, most of my problems in life were self-inflicted, okay? So Terry, quit doing stupid stuff. Okay, that's not bad either. Yet the reality is you'll never be able to control it well enough and you'll never be able to control your circumstances well enough. That is the assurance that there is meaning in what is happening. And God is able to make meaning out of what has happened. You know this. If you've been a Christ follower for very long, and even if you haven't, when you look back in your life, you can mine your past, if you will, for faith. If you just dig into your past a little bit, you know what you're gonna find? You're gonna find a trustworthy God that even when you weren't following him, he was trying to draw you to him. Everybody has stories of that should have turned out differently. That could have been disastrous. And yet, somehow, it seems as though there's been a hand in my past. That's the hand of God. If you've been following Christ, you recognize it. You, you will see it. You will see it happening as the difficulties are happening to you. How many times have you been in a difficulty and you said, look, I knew there would be hard things, but you know what, look what God did. He brought me this very supportive community of Christ believers. He brought me a mentor. He brought me this wonderful spouse. He gave me this enduring faith. He works all things together for good in my life. You will see that happening. That's the essence of the idea of meaning and that's what Jesus is talking about. I wanna make one connection as long as we're here. This sounds awfully lectury too, so if you have any questions, text them in. But I really want you to see this connection. That, the word for that, if you and I were just saying, well, what, is, what kind of God, how would you describe a God who did that, who was working together all things for good for you, whether you deserved it or not, right? I mean, whether it's like, Terry, you did something stupid, I know, but my God can work even my mistakes for good. Doesn't say he can work all your good deeds for good. He says he can work everything for good. What would you call a God like that? I'd say that was benevolent. That's just benevolent. That's somebody that's well disposed toward me. I don't know why. Have you ever had somebody that did you favors and you have no idea why? I mean, do you ever have someone that they were really nice to you and you're like, God, I don't know what I did to deserve that, but thanks, that's great. That's just called benevolence, isn't it? That's what grace is. That's a great way to think about God's grace. God's grace, it's not all there is to grace, but grace in its essence is simply saying this, God is benevolently disposed toward you, he is infinitely powerful, and therefore, whether you deserve it or not, as a follower of Christ, he will work in every circumstance for good. What do I need to do? You don't need to do anything. 
You just need to follow Christ. Surrender your life to Christ. Like, that's it? Yes. So I'm gonna be God's man, I'm gonna be God's woman? Yeah. Do I need to earn this? No, you don't need to earn this. It's grace. It's God's benevolence to you. It's unmerited favor, meaning he just likes you and I do not know, because I know some of you. I mean, it's like, I do not know why he likes us so well. David said it this way back in Psalm 8. Oh, this is like 2,900 years ago. He said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun and the stars which you have put in place, what are human beings that you care for us? Who are we that you love us? What's he saying? He said, I don't know why, and yet you love us. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever places their trust in him will never perish. The apostle Paul says it this way in Romans, for I consider that the sufferings and the difficulties of this life, and boy, he had his share, won't even compare to what God is doing. He says, even creation eagerly awaits to see how God's gonna work all of this out, all this negative stuff that's happening. How's he gonna work this out for good? That's the Christian life now, and it's not philosophical. So you don't have to beat yourself up that you can't control your emotions. You don't really have to control everybody in your life to get them to act right. You just need to realize that the things that happen to me have a purpose, that God actually sees you, knows you, knows those events, and actually in a way that you and I usually don't understand until afterwards. It's like, whoa, can you believe how God worked that out? And that's the key to peace. And that's why Philippians says this. It's another verse, Romans 8, 28, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Memorize them, say them to yourself a hundred times a day. What are you doing? What your head knows is true, your heart needs to experience as true. And the idea is that this is true. Now, preach that to your heart to where you believe it in your bones. You will be at peace. That is the promise of Christ. Don't be anxious about anything. That's so absurd that you think, man, I, I don't even know if I can believe the Bible. Don't be anxious, don't be, uh, you know, don't worry about things. He says, but in every circumstance, by prayer and petition, pray to God, say, God, I, I'm struggling here. With thanksgiving perspective, present your request to God and what will happen? And he will wave his wand and everything will turn out perfectly. No, that's not true. If it said that, I wouldn't believe. If it said that, I wouldn't believe the Bible. That's not what it says. He says, but you know what will happen? The peace of God, which is beyond your ability to understand, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He said, if you will let go of the outcomes in your life, if you will accept the fact that bad things are going to happen, I'm gonna cause some of them, other people are gonna cause some of them. When those bad things happen, I want to react well, but I won't always react well. I won't always stop the anxiety from coming in. Nevertheless, if I will say, God, this is gonna to have to be you, because I can't, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to preserve my peace in this. What's this passage say? If you will let go of that and give it to him, he will give you peace. Do you trust God that he can work in any circumstance for good? That's the fundamental question of being a Christian. In fact, 
if you want to, you can define a Christian that way, and I'm comfortable with that. Do you trust God that he can work in all things for good? That he can run your life better than you can run your life? That's the essential question. Who wants to be God in your life? I do. I'm gonna psychologize my way or I'm gonna control my way out of this. Let me know how that works out for you. Didn't work for me, don't know anybody it's working all that well for. But the idea is, is you know what, I think I'm gonna turn it over to you and I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna walk the way you want me to walk. I'm gonna do the things you want me to do. I'm gonna be compassionate when I don't wanna be compassionate. I'm gonna be forgiving when I don't wanna be forgiving. I'm gonna feel at peace knowing that there is now no condemnation that I am completely at peace with Christ. You really can walk through the world looking very differently knowing there's that meaning. Does that make sense? I really want you to understand that can be done. Wow, I don't know if I can do that. Oh, by the way, I do. You can't. You know who can? The Holy Spirit that lives inside you. God placed his spirit in you, Ephesians 1.13 amongst others, when you placed your trust in Christ, he gave you his spirit as a down payment. Like, Holy Spirit, listen to him, he's gonna manage your life. When you get to heaven, we'll meet face to face. But right now, here's my spirit inside you. That's a down payment that I can work everything for good. And that is the essence of how you do it. That's what we do in prayer. Think about praying a little bit less. God fix this, God fix that, God fix her, God heavens fix him. I don't know how you're gonna do that. God fix this situation, whatever. Those are not bad prayers. Your father cares very much about your circumstances. Bigger thing is God give me more faith. Do you remember that prayer in the Bible? Increase our faith. God help me to trust you more in this situation because I don't know the answer. If you can fix it, please do. This is difficult, it's painful. If you can heal this disease, please heal it but not my will, your will. Give me faith to trust you more. That prayer, the Holy Spirit will always answer for you, okay? That is my prescription to get you through until January 12th, okay? So that's what you've gotta do until we're here next time. Now, in all seriousness, I really would like for you to think about that. I'd really like for you to think about the Bible's not a self-help book, the Bible is a God help. And it's not God is my co-pilot kind of help. It's like, just let God run your life. Trust him with the outcomes in your life. He really is trustworthy and he really can work in all things for good. So here's the deal. 30 day money back guarantee. Give God a trial. You try living like this for 30 days. Seriously, I'm actually not being facetious for a change. You try living like that for 30 days. And every time you start to worry, you say, whoop, 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 I'm in the free trial period. I made a commitment, I'm gonna give God a try for 30 days and I'm gonna trust he can work in this for good. Seriously, try it. And you will be amazed at what will happen, okay? I'll be here January 12th if you wanna tell me differently. I'll see you guys next year. Merry Christmas to you.